so I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Things in the air, Kristen. Yeah. Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss Skimmerly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we're all apparently very, very tired uh, for various reasons. I so am your... tired. <laughs> I I am your host, and with me as always is co-host Karen Peterson. Hello. Um, and so, how are you doing today, Karen? You have been you've been running around a lot and doing a lot of fun things. Do you want to talk about what you've been up to for the past the past like week or so? Oh my gosh, I've been doing so many things, so many things. The so last weekend I was in the Hamptons, and. As much as that sounds like a wonderful vacation, I was working because I was at the Hamptons International Film Festival, which was awesome, and I had a great time. And we'll talk more specifically about that uh, in a bit, but um, but it was great. And then I came home. I got home on Monday, and then Tuesday night I had an event here in LA uh, for Rocket Man. Wow. And yeah, they're doing Academy ev- events for it, and I'm like good because Taryn Edgerton deserves an Oscar nomination. If Rami Malek could win last year, Taryn Edgerton deserves to at least be considered. And I feel like people had forgotten about that movie. And so they had this event and Elton John was actually there, which is why I decided to go. And, um, but it was really cool. They did a screening of the movie and it, it was for Academy voters. And it turned out that a lot of the people that were there had just not gotten around to seeing it. And they loved it. So that made me really happy because I thought, okay, this movie isn't dead. <laughs> there are chances for it to come back into the race, which is really exciting. And then they yeah. had a Q&A afterwards with Elton John, with Taron Edgerton, Dexter Fletcher, the director, um, Bryce Dallas Howard, and then Bernie Taupin, who is, of course, played by Jamie Bell in the movie, who was also there. And he's Elton John's longtime writing partner. So it was a great Q&A. The moderator was really good because he made sure to go around and ask everybody questions. He was just going around in a circle, which was awesome. But they also had time to kind of cross talk and respond to each other, which was which was really good. And then they had a reception afterwards. Of course, Elton and Bernie bugged out. They didn't stay. Um, but everybody else did. And I got to chat with Dexter Fletcher, who is just the sweetest man. And it just... This The whole event just made me so mad all over again about Bohemian Rhapsody. And I just kept thinking, like, man, <laughs> if he'd actually gotten to make that movie, the Queen biopic would have been a much different experience. And it would have been so much better. So it just made me mad about Bohemian Rhapsody all over again. But it was a great event. It was a lot of fun. And yeah, uh, I'm glad that they're actually pushing for uh for academy award nominations because that yeah. film does, like you're saying that film does deserve it and it does seem like we've we've forgotten about it 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, it came out at the beginning of the summer. So much yeah. has happened since then. I mean, we're still in the same year that Captain Marvel came out, which seems so weird because I that know. feels 10 years ago now. I know. I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, really? No, yeah. that's not that's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so, so, yeah, I mean, it was just a couple months ago, but it feels so long. And, and yeah, I'm really glad they had another event like wednesday or thursday night at the hollywood bowl so they're really they're really doing a a real campaign with rocket man i'm glad to see it yeah i'm really glad to see it and then this weekend i'm covering the animation is film festival which this is the third year of it and um so there's some pretty cool stuff the this is a festival that celebrates all kinds of animation and like they are having a special panel with Frozen 2 um, artists and so mm-hmm. they'll, they're will they not showing Frozen 2 yet but they're going to be doing a panel which is all information I've seen because I actually got to, got to do a really cool press day there but um, but that's the thing so it's like Pixar and Disney but they also do um, you know really independent stuff they have a lot of G-Kids and Studio Ghibli films screen uh-huh. there. So it's the whole gamut of animation. It's a really cool festival, and, and I'm glad that it's made it to year three, and I hope it just continues to get bigger and better every year. So that's where I'm headed as soon as we're done with this uh, this episode. i got to get up to L.A. for that. So, yeah, wow. that's what I've been doing. How about you, besides <laughs> hanging out in the ER? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's, everything's okay. Don't, don't worry. It was for a friend. It was for a friend. Don't, I just want to say that to our, our listeners. Just like, everything is all right. Um, (laughs) I, yeah, well, in the weekend prior to that, I got to dog sit, which was the most fun in the world. It's such a sweet doggy. I love dogs. I want a dog so badly. Um, Oh, I know. Yeah. So that was that was fun. The the one thing that was not fun was that the dog was really insistent that six a.m. was time for walks, and <laughs> I was like, "No, six a.m. is not time for walks." She was like, "No, it really is." <laughs> uh, so we had an argument about that, and I kind of won in that I got to sleep uh, an extra half hour. But other other than that, she <laughs> she finally succeeded at convincing me that we definitely needed to go out. Um, <laughs> But other than that, so I, I we're going to talk about this in a minute, but I you know, finished up at New York Film Festival. I didn't get to see as many films this year as I have in previous years, just because of other work things. Um, but happily, pretty much every film that I saw, I enjoyed. Like, And it, they kind of run the gamut to, to decent all the way through to fantastic. I mean, we talked about Parasite. Um, we talked about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. There's there's some great films that are coming out and they're like slowly being rolled out in their releases. And it's a really wonderful thing to see. And I had a great time doing that. So that was fun. Awesome. Uh, so let's move on to some slightly less fun things. Don't have tons of news this week because we don't want to focus on all of the terrible people who are terrible, but there is one terrible person that we kind of always knew was terrible, but now we have pretty explicit confirmation of it. Jeremy Renner uh, has has been involved with some uh, issues with his ex-wife, who is, uh, in, in September, filed a request for the legal and fiscal custody of their daughter. 
um, who is six, six years old? Yeah, six years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason that she is citing for this is basically that um, he has been dangerous and abusive. And some of the some of the things that Renner has done, according to this this claim, these claims, is that he threatened to kill his ex-wife. He one time stuck a gun in his mouth and shot into the ceiling while Ava was in her room. Um, and Ava's he, the daughter. Ava's the daughter. Yeah, and he left. This just like makes me go like, oh my god. Um, he left uh, cocaine on the bathroom counter where his six-year-old daughter could reach. So this has kind of inspired more discussion about Jeremy Renner and about his behavior. And he's been criticized over the years. I mean, all kinds of things about him have been criticized over the years, just in terms of his behavior, in terms of his attitude toward women. Um, of course, when you get into something that is like the actual, the actually the well-being of a child, uh, that's a major problem. But it's quite obvious that he's abusive and that sounds like he probably has a drug problem, or at least he did. So I wish I could say this was disappointing, because, but I don't particularly like Jeremy Renner, so I don't know. I think that it's frightening. I, I think that it's very sad to hear about this kind of thing. Um, Karen, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, Jeremy Renner is one of those, I just thought he was a sexist asshole. Yeah, <laughs> but to find out, because I mean, because he's made comments about like, oh, Black Widow was a slut, not Scarlett Johansson, Black Widow, um, and who knows what he said about Scarlett, but um, but yeah, so he's made those kinds of comments and things over the years, but to actually see this, I mean, this was just devastating. One of the things that, I mean, just a week or so ago, I stumbled across a special on TV that was talking about Phil Hartman. Mm-hmm. And and about his death, where he he was murdered in in a murder suicide by his wife, and it just made me think about that. And I just thought, oh my gosh, Sonny Pacheco, his his ex wife. I mean, what she went through being married to this guy that everyone is just like, oh, he's so wonderful, he's so talented, and she's sitting there like, you guys have no idea, you know. And I just yeah. we hear these kinds of stories from time to time, and it's just it really makes you think about the people that you admire and profess to love. And it's like, what's really going on behind the scenes. And so I just was thinking about that a lot and, and to have a kid in the middle of all this as well. And being literally being putting this daughter in jeopardy too, is just so devastating. And uh, I mean, of course, this is all allegations. There is a possibility that Sonny's making all of this up, but I mean, we know how strong of a possibility that is. So. Yeah, it seems very specific. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, the, these things we've talked about this so much. It's not like well, we're just repeating ourselves now, but um, you know, it there with these things, particularly when they happen. Um, like in a domestic situation it's usually only two people who are involved in it unless you have a child that is old enough to actually testify etc so right. there does become this he said she said um but if those... he shot a gun into the ceiling then there's yeah. evidence <laughs> yeah exactly and so this this has this has the ring of truth to it this does not have the ring of oh this is something that an ex-wife is making up in order to obtain custody Right. Uh, but you know, one one never knows um, 
And certainly Renner has had erratic behavior in the past, and he has had issues in the past, so this is not, this is part of a pattern. It looks like it's more of a pattern than um, just a complete outlier of like, oh, this is really weird, we would never expect it from, from him. Oh, yeah. Like, I remember being at the Avengers press conference earlier this year, and he was so clearly out of it. It was like, I don't know what he's on, but he is definitely on something. And that's Mm -hmm. me sitting in the audience, like, 50 feet away or 100 feet away or something, and I could tell that just based on how weird he was acting and how he didn't seem to understand questions and stuff. And it was like, at an Avengers Disney event, like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> What's he like in private life if he's willing to go out there like that, you know? Yeah, and that... In that front of a whole bunch of press. And that indicates someone with a serious drug problem. Exactly. Um, who is, like, and he probably actually needs help. Um, <laughs> but, of course, that should not be... That should not wind up endangering his child or... Exactly. Uh, or anyone, really. Right. It should be something that he has to work out and that he probably needs help working out. But it's very... It's similar to some of the things that when... Um, the, the abuse allegations came out about Johnny Depp, uh, where uh, you know, his ex-wife Amber Heard accused him of, um, of beating her, throwing a phone at her face, um, and of being very violent. And that was very much of a piece with some of the other things that we've known about Johnny Depp over the years, that he has had yeah. violent relationships, that he has had borderline abusive relationships. Not always physically abusive, um, just loud fights and trashing hotel rooms but you know it's it's all of a piece and with the renner stuff it's a similar similar thing Mm -hmm. so yeah exactly so let's move on from jeremy renner i don't want to talk about jeremy renner anymore (laughs) Um, Mm -mm. i want to talk about how people are stupid and i hate them (laughs) yes (laughs) so so stupid so the reason why people are stupid is because every six months well, it's because they are actually stupid. They refuse they're, to educate themselves. They're actually stupid. Yeah, they're willfully ignorant. That's what drives me crazy is the willful ignorance of this. So every six months, film Twitter decides that we're going to have yet another conversation about whether or not people who write about film professionally should know things about film. This seems like an incredibly idiotic argument to me because it's like yes of course you should know things about film if you're going to write about film professionally why would you not know things about film but this came up again this week when um not film critic according to him and many of his supporters um shay serrano gave an interview to i believe it was esquire mm-hmm. uh and and he has recently released a book that is basically about movies he likes and one of the things one of the things that he said was when I was working on the heist chapter I was reading best lists of heist movies one that kept appearing on this on the list was this movie called Rafifi it's in black and white everybody talks about how great it was they do this really cool trick in there where there's a long stretch of just straight up silence while they try to break into wherever I get it that part was cool and I imagine at the time it was really fun but you watch it today and it's just not that great uh, he also said they're not fun. It's clear they are still trying to figure out how to do things. And he's talking about older films. Films older than the 1980s. Okay, so we're talking about 1970s films. So he says things like some of them are, of course, undeniable, like Jar- like Jaws or Star Wars or Indiana Jones. You watch those and you go, oh, I see in this the bones of what eventually became whatever action franchise. 
but mostly they're just not that fun to watch. I, I mean, I and many other people and you and just every, I think that many of us just had a, a, a melting point of that, of just like, what, first of all, first of all, like, I, I'm sorry, this is someone, I'm going to, I'm going to come off of just really elitist here, but you know what, I don't care. This, this does not sound like a very intelligent person. Oh. No. He, what? <laughs> I just said no. <laughs> he doesn't. <laughs> I mean, he really like just in the way that he's putting things. It's just like it. There, it's like the foundations of you know an action franchise or whatever. It just sounds very stupid. I'm sorry, stupid. And that is a. Ref- but this is someone who has written a book about movies and is saying these things about you know it's fine if you don't like Rafifi. I don't care. I think that. I find it odd if you don't like Rafifi, but that's that's fine. That's a personal response. It is not okay to just dismiss those films if you are a professional writer about film. And one of the things that everyone kept on saying was, oh, he's not really a critic. Just like, okay, but he's writing professionally about film and he's getting paid for it. And he's essentially saying that my ignorance of cinema my ignorance of all of these past films, the fact that, oh, I just don't like these old movies that he obviously doesn't know very much about to begin with. I doubt whether he's watched that many of them. Um, and certainly nothing that he says indicates that he has. Uh, you know, so it's, it's difficult, it's difficult to, to like put into words how ridiculous this sounds and how ridiculous it is to defend it. He is defending his ignorance. He's saying that my ignorance is perfectly fine, it is perfectly legitimate, it is in fact in some ways better than all of these elitist film critics who actually watch films. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I, I'm just, <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know where to start, but um, I pulled up the book because I was really curious, and um, first of all, it made me sad because there's a foreword by John Leguizamo, and I was like, John... John, 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 come on. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but here are some of the chapters in his book that's about movies from a guy who's not a film critic. Um, who's the better tough guy movie dog owner? Who gets it the worst in Kill Bill? Is this movie better, the same, or worse with The Rock in it? Were the Jurassic Park raptors just misunderstood? <laughs> like, uh, and then he has stuff like, um, which kills are in the Action Movie Kills Hall of Fame? Imagine writing a book like that and then thinking movies like Bullet or uh, Bonnie and Clyde or, you know, all these other movies, like, don't even merit consideration for something where you're talking about movie kills, you know? Like... Well, no, exactly. What this sounds like is it's basically movies I movies I liked and and I watched. Yeah. You know, that's kind of like, which, you know what, fine, that's fine for a letterbox list or fine for a blog post. But, I mean, and there's a whole other issue here about the fact that this book even got published. Right? Mm-hmm. But we're not even talking about that. I'm just thinking about the... The, the fact, lack of intellectual curiosity, that's the yeah, problem. 
Yeah, and the anti-intellectualism that this kind of thing posits, and the fact that there, and I, I do have to say, and this is something, this is why it's stretched beyond this one person, right? Everybody's like, why are you so mad at Shea Serrano? He's not that important. It's like, okay, yeah, but there are well-regarded film critics who are defending this. Mm-hmm. There are people who are saying that no, this is totally fine, and that you know you're just being an elitist if you try. And, and again, it is not elitist to say that you need to know something about the subject that you're writing about. That is like a fucking fundamental issue. Yeah, I mean, and no, and knowing something. Uh, sorry, knowing something about film does mean that you have to watch more than whatever film happens to be on Redbox at the time. That is not knowing anything about film. That's watching a movie. Mm -hmm. And if that's all that you want to do, that's fine. But don't pretend that you should be a professional film writer and certainly don't start selling a goddamn book about it and then not expecting some kind of pushback for it. Exactly. Yeah, it's... it's, I, I mean, I actually found this very offensive. I found it offensive to film criticism and I found it offensive that the defense was well I just love movies and it's like well no you don't because right. if if you really loved movies people I mean film critics professional film critics film historians etc film academics love movies I love movies I love them so much that I watch them constantly and I watch all kinds of different films and sometimes I don't like them and sometimes I do and sometimes I find something new to you know be interested in and to experience but if all you're doing is sitting around watching you know the fast and the furious franchise and that is what you think action movies are you don't really love movies exactly exactly and so a couple of things i mean for one like it's you know to go on with what you were saying you don't have to like everything you don't have to like anything but uh to be able to speak intellectually about it for example, with a recent example, I don't know if anybody has been aware of this, but I did not like the Joker movie. And, uh, no. but even watching that, there are things about it because I am an intelligent individual who is able to separate story from theme, from acting, from craft you know am able to sit back and look at it and go wow this story is really fucked up but you know what there are some elements to this that are well made you know I can actually look at that Mm -hmm. I can separate out things and I would be able to speak intelligently in a conversation about this movie and not even get into all the things I hate about it you know Uh, and that's the thing is like if you don't like old movies which I actually hate when people reference them that way anyway Kind of like when people call independent films artsy-fartsy. It's like, wow, thank you for just dismissing 95% of cinema, but whatever. Um, but yeah, like to if you can't go back and look at films that were made before 1970, or it sounds like for him, 1980, um, and... Even if you don't enjoy them, if you can't find anything to appreciate about them, then you're you're not someone that should be trusted to write anything about this. I mean, that's like me saying, you know, I'm going to write a book about pop music, but I didn't listen to any music before 2002, you know, Mm -hmm. or I'm not going to reference all the people that influenced Taylor Swift or Lady Gaga, you know? I mean, it's the same idea. 
And it's really frustrating. And then the other thing, too, that I was thinking about was earlier this week I saw I saw an article about the new Nancy Drew series on the CW. And they were talking about how it's just starting to look like Riverdale and all these other shows. And it's just basically mimicking them. And I was like, wow, hmm. Yeah, Nancy Drew was actually a novel series that started in mm-hmm. the 20s. And the Archie comics and all these other things actually drew heavily from Nancy Drew back in the day. So really, <laughs> like, let's really look at the history. And if you don't have that history, you don't know what influenced what and what came first. And and it limits your credibility. And as you say, part of the problem is that there are too many people that are considered respectable that are basically egging this on and encouraging it and it's become a problem yeah there are people that should know better and i mean i'm not going to reference some of the people that have basically come out and been like no this is totally fine but these are these are well-respected critics many of whom use film history and and quote older films which is not a genre by the way everybody uh rafifi was not made in the united states it is not an old hollywood film i don't i i have a feeling that some of you don't realize that it's a french film uh it's considered one of the greatest french noirs of of all time which by the way builds off of the concept of film noir which was a french designation referring to certain post-war american films so this all keeps on going back that's that's the thing and that's that's one of the things that i love about film and that i love about film criticism is that you know you start if you can start with something like taxi driver and you can trace the lineage of taxi driver back and someone like scorsese is very open about that and the relationships that his films have to previous films and that's to me, that's fun. That's exciting. That's not a knock on Taxi Driver that there are other references within it and that it's it's built on a, a film history and a concept of film culture. It's really important. One of the other things that, that kept on coming up and then I think kind of addresses one of the wider issues is that there's this idea that particularly older films express a certain worldview that just is not very accepting of women, of um, minorities, of uh, pretty much anyone, again, who's not a straight white man. And while I think that that is true, there also loses a lot of nuance in that argument. Because one of the things that, you know, we tend to talk about the golden age of cinema and the golden age of Hollywood. Um, Mexico, during the 1940s and the 1950s, had a spectacular film uh, history. It, it had... Um, major you know these were major releases and everything and this is a kind of cinema that has not been talked about a great deal it's talked about very very often it's in reference to someone like louis benwell who went to mexico and made a number of films in mexico but not really dealing with the actual production of the mexican film industry and those are very underseen films so this idea that it was just hollywood that was dominating film in the 20s or the 30s or the 40s or the 50s is is incorrect and kind of ignores the fact that there is there is such a thing as world cinema. And by world cinema, we're talking about everybody but Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And some of these cinemas are incredibly complicated. Some of them have, some of them inform on Hollywood. You know, we often talk about the way that German film influenced Hollywood filmmaking. Um, some of them completely depart from Hollywood. 
and produce something totally different. And meanwhile, within Hollywood, there were other very often considered minor tycoons of film industries that were, and, and so like one of the ones that um, I like referencing is uh, Kino Lorber recently, a couple of years ago, released um, a box set about Africa, that dealt with films by African-American filmmakers. And most of these were from the teens into the 20s and 30s and 40s. And these were considered to be, usually were referred to as poverty row films. They're very low budget films. Um, that were produced specifically for uh, for African American audiences, but they're fascinating, and they actually show black characters in a variety of roles in a way that that um, the that Hollywood films of the time period didn't. They're really fascinating to watch. Some of them are fantastic films, and they often get ignored and kind of pushed to the side. The same thing has happened with. Um, female filmmakers and we finally kind of reached the point where we're talking about people like Dorothy Arzner and Ida Lupino who did contribute to American filmmaking in that period so there's there's all of this richness that people are losing in just dismissing these films as being like oh they're just for old white men they're not important in, in any sense and they're not really for me because I'm I, I'm a Latinx or I'm a, a woman or I'm African American and that's, you know, dig deeper, guys. There's so much that's available. There is so much to actually look at and to experience. And there are people that are talking about this all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when people, um, I mean, to your point, when people talk about the lack of representation in film, I, I think so many of them, not just with women, not just with African Americans, but I mean, there were so many films made before 1927 that were so inclusive and so representative. And, and I think so many people don't know that because of the fact that they're completely unwilling to learn about it and to go back and find this stuff. A lot of those films are available. We've talked about this a billion times, but a lot of those are available through the library of Congress, through YouTube. And there's another one that you mentioned before, which one was Uh... it? internet archive internet archive so there's all these opportunities to see these things i mean what happened in 1927 the academy was created everything went studio and that was when as soon as there were money and accolades involved they started shutting people out of the industry that were not the white men that is absolutely a fact but if you look at all kinds of stuff before that which you can watch totally for free uh you'll see that the you'll see where that divide was and you'll see how actually insidious it was what happened in 1927. And I think it furthers the point. And I think that we need to champion those movies and encourage people to get out there and watch them. And I mean, this, this week when this conversation was going on with this Shea Serrano thing and people were complaining about the lack of access. And I was like, no, in this day and age, that is not an excuse. Sure. You can't see everything, But you can see a whole lot of stuff that was never available before the time that we're living in. I mean, this is a magical time where you can find these things. And you can find a lot of stuff that's been forgotten and totally relegated to just, like, archives. And you can find it. And there's a whole host of awesome content that is available. Well, and and I just want to say one more thing in terms of representation in American film. 
uh, we very often just focus on Hollywood and what Hollywood was producing. But there is there was actually an American independent scene um, all the way through from like you're saying from 1927 all the way through to the contemporary moment. I mean, you know, the, mm-hmm. American independent did not suddenly happen with the fall of the studio system. And one of the films that that I was just thinking about is a film called The Crimson Kimono, which is um, a Samuel Fuller film from 1959. So this is a, a primarily independent film, but the film deals with it's it's about it's a it's a film noir um, that is set in I believe San Francisco, and um, no Los Angeles. Sorry, I'm wrong. Uh, but it's about a lot of what it's about is about the conflict between the minority Japanese community in Los Angeles and um, white cops and the main character is a Japanese American cop who falls in love with a white woman and that's part of the story and it is one of the most fascinating and complex narratives about race in America and about the way that that non-white people are treated at the hands of the police from the perspective of a Japanese-American cop. It's a fascinating film. It's a really good mystery. It's a very good film noir. But this is something that could not have been made within the Hollywood system, but it can be made kind of ancillary to the Hollywood system. And again, 1959. This is a fantastic and incredibly progressive film for 1959 and even for today it deals with things that we don't talk about a great deal and we don't see in Hollywood as much it's important to actually know about those things and to actually and to seek them out to be like you know oh this is interesting I like this director let me follow through on some of the stuff that he's done Uh, and you can find some fascinating stuff so Mm -hmm. like yeah just I just wish that people would not limit themselves so much and not be like oh there isn't anything worth anything until 1980. It's because eventually you know what we're going to get to the point where we're going to hear young critics saying there isn't anything worth anything before you know 2010. Yeah. And we're all going to be horrified including people like Shea Serrano and he's going to be like wait a minute that's not right. And it's like well it is to them because this is exactly what you did in 2019. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah exactly. Exactly. And, you know, on my other podcast, The Watch and Talk, they have a top 101 that we've put together. I've talked about this before. And I was really insistent on not calling it, like, the best 101 of all time or whatever because of the fact that so many of the contributions were not going to look at movies before 1970. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, Dylan, my co-host, he 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 has been one of those people that said, "Yeah, I just don't like old movies." And I've kind of made him watch a few. I've guilted him into them, but I specifically choose movies that f- fall into the preferences that he has for movies now. Mm-hmm. So, like, he loves a good romance. He loves, you know, he loves really good drama and things like that. And so, you know, one week I challenged him to watch The Apartment, and he loved it. And I was just like, and he was so surprised that he loved it. And I was like, but of course you did. It has all kinds of really good elements. And it talks about things that you didn't know that movies in 1960 would talk about. But they do. And this is just one example of many films that cover things like suicide and, you know, scorned lovers and, you know, affairs and all those kinds of things. And... There's so many others out there, too, that I think you'd also like if you give them a chance. 
Well, one of the ones that always tops lists all the time, The Apartment is one, and another Billy Wilder film, Some Like It Hot. Mm-hmm. And that one tops all kinds of comedy lists, and it feels like people mostly focus on the fact that it's Marilyn Monroe, and sometimes on the fact that it's uh, uh, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon in drag. But if you actually dig a little bit deeper, that film is saying a lot of interesting stuff about gender oh, yeah. and about sexuality. And it, and I mean, it, you know, the final line is referenced all the time, but it is remarkably transgressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's, I'm still amazed sometimes. I watch that film and I'm like, how did Billy Wilder get away with this? Like, how <laughs> did no one go like, uh... I don't think he can do that. And it's like, oh, no, we totally did. And part of the way he got away with it was via comedy and being like, oh, no, it's all a joke. Right. And it's like, but it's not. And you can feel that in the film. Uh, mm-hmm. Similar D- Douglas Sirk melodramas get away with talking about all kinds of social issues and particularly surrounding masculinity and femininity and sexuality and gender. Um in, in ways that you don't expect from the time period. And I think that that says more about the way that we perceive those that time period than it does about the time period itself. True. I mean, I remember seeing Psycho the first time I was like 16, 17, and I was so surprised, first of all, that you see Marion in a bra. Yeah. And, um, Opening and, scene. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I was just like, wait, <laughs> what year was this made? Weren't they all supposed to be Puritans? You know? And that she's like sleeping with a married man, and I was so mm-hmm. surprised by that. But now, the more that I've seen classic films, it's like, oh, actually, like, they were still people back then. Yeah. Sure, they didn't talk about things the way that we do, but their morality wasn't all, you know, pure and innocent. Yeah. Like I had once assumed that it was, you know? Yeah, I, I've been watching a lot of pre-code horror films, some of which are quite staggeringly racist. <laughs> there is definitely <laughs> oh, that. But some of which also also deal with, again, issues that we do not expect from, from films of this period and... and you know, for anyone who doesn't know, pre pre code films are before the um, the production code was really put into effect. So there's a it's kind of a small period between the end of the silent period and the beginning of the production code where you had speaking films um, that could actually deal more explicitly with things like sex and violence and um, uh, and all all kinds of things and like. Uh, interracial relationships and stuff like that and so you get this they're fascinating films because on the one hand you do have some very retrograde ideas but on the other hand you begin to see that like there's some fascinating stuff that people were actually talking about and that was okay to show in films of this period one of the one of the films i recently watched was a film called dr x which is a um uh, actually a a two-strip technicolor film which means it's in color everybody in from 1932 yeah Uh, (laughs) and but it deals explicitly with prostitution cannibalism and rape in Hmm. a 1932 film it is great it's on the internet archive it is a fascinating film very creepy very bizarre um but really well done another one that everyone talks about is the black cat with um bella lugosi and boris karloff again Lots of weird shit going down in that movie. Uh, very violent, very explicit, very, like, all cut stuff about incest and murder and flaying people alive and 
all sorts of things that, again, you don't expect from films of that period, but it's because of the production code. And so we get to see more, and I think we get more insight into what was actually going on in film in that period and what was going on in the culture of that period. I mean, when people tell me that the world is more violent than it's ever been now, I'm like, have you ever studied Roman history? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, this is the thing. Like, we have this idea that in the past, because it's the past, there's this innocence. And I think it's important to understand that it's not so much that people were innocent back then. They just were more chorus they just didn't talk about things that we talk about so openly now and it doesn't mean that those things didn't happen or that they were unaware of them or, or whatever so you I, mean, know. I, I think about some of the stories that I've heard about my my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents and I'm like mm, I don't know grandma and grandpa were kind of kinky like <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> I I, th- I think that they could have taught us a thing or two I don't know about this they're like you kids today don't even know yeah exactly (laughs) but i i agree that probably they they were less likely to talk about it openly um Mm -hmm. or to talk about it certainly to talk about it in in a public setting um versus talking about it within the family yeah exactly um so yeah everybody please i think once again we're just gonna have to go go and watch movies there's so many they're great you know, if you don't know where to get into classical films and you don't know where to get into, quote, older movies, go to the AFI list or the BFI list. Just find find a film, like you're saying, find a genre that like, oh, I really love romances. All right, well, what are the great cinematic romances? What are considered to be the great cinematic romances? And you won't always like them. You won't always say like, oh, yeah, this is this is the the best film but you might and you might get into an actor who is in them or a director and that's how you find more types of films like this yeah Um, i mean i was on uh shutter one day this is a month or two ago and i was just scrolling through and i stumbled across i can't even remember the title right now but i stumbled across a horror movie from 1930 33 or something and I just was like oh what's this and I started watching it and I mean I didn't necessarily think it was the greatest movie ever but it was really interesting and I was just like wow this again deals with stuff I wouldn't have expected and it's an old horror movie The Old Dark House that's what it was yes. 1932 James Whale Yeah James Whale Yeah yeah, and and that's the thing. It's like, man, these movies were scary. It's just because they're black and white doesn't mean they're. Not, I mean, that one wasn't that scary, but you know what I mean. Like, I think black and white horror is the best horror, personally. I mean, I, I recently made an argument that the best uh, that the best years for horror were nineteen thirty one to nineteen thirty three, and I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna stand by that to be honest because there was some fascinating shit that went down, and that's by the way that's just the uh, years that. The original Dracula was made. Um, the original mm-hmm. Frankenstein, directed by James Whale. Um, I think Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, I think early, that was thirty-three. Yeah. Early version of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Um, uh, Freaks. Todd Browning's Freaks. Mm-hmm. Todd Browning was the original director of Dracula. He also made a number of silent horror films with Lon Chaney, but one of his most well-known um, talky films is the film Freaks, which deals explicitly with disability and in fact has a large cast of disabled performers. Um, and it is a, a great film. And I, that's definitely available. I know that that's available on um, 
and the Criterion Collection, I think that it's available in various forms because it's it's a public domain film. Uh, but yeah, go like it's Halloween. Like go check those out, these movies out. They are great. <laughs> it's so much fun to discover these older films, and and like you said, like I have said, ex- you know, explicitly, classic is not a genre. There are all kinds of genres that are represented in old films, and you should go seek them out. If you really like horror movies, you don't if you haven't seen anything before 1980. You know, if the first, if the earliest horror film you have seen is Halloween or maybe throw in Psycho, um, you don't love horror movies. You just don't. Sorry. Yeah. And that would mean that you've missed out on all of the great horror, like, the, the great horror icons, Vincent Price and Peter Cushing exactly. and Christopher Lee and Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney and Lon Chaney Jr. And I mean, Peter Laurie, come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. All right. So let's move on from that. People are stupid, but hopefully maybe some people will be less stupid in the future. <laughs> Educate yourself, folks. Don't come back until you do. Uh, well, we've been talking, you know what, we've been talking a lot about horror films. Let's let's give some spooky recommendations. What are some recommendations that you have for spooky films that, that you want to watch or that you want people to watch right now, Karen? I mean, I'll recommend The Old Dark House. Go watch that. It's on <laughs> Shudder. <laughs> I think it's still on Shudder. Yeah, it um, is. Yeah, I, uh, I would also recommend, what else would I recommend? Um... I fell asleep. I didn't finish it. And not because it was boring. It was just because I was extremely tired. But I finally started Tigers Are Not Afraid. And what I got through was so, so good. And I'm really sad that I fell asleep. But I'm going to finish it today because it's really great. I love it. Um, And if you want something that's really stupid and you want to turn your brain off for a while turn on wounds which is on hulu it just jumped (laughs) to hulu yesterday it's a really bad movie it doesn't make any sense it's a total misuse of army hammer and dakota johnson and zazie beats but you know what it's still there's something about it that's kind of wacky enough that it's it's worth watching so that you can make fun of how stupid it is so there you go Well, I've, I've, I mean, I always, I watch too many horror films <laughs> during, during <laughs> Halloween. Then I'm like, oh my God, do I actually, what have I seen? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and, and so I do, I did want to recommend people, a number of people have recommended this, but I finally got to see it because it's on Hulu now. Um, Little Monsters. Yay! Uh, with Lupita Nyong'o and, um, and I'm now blanking on the guy's name, but he's cute. Alexander as- England okay. and Josh Gad. Yes, Josh Gad. That's right. Uh, and it's fun. It is a fun zombie movie. Uh, I, I had a little bit of a reservation about it because it, it has some weird tonal shifts that mm-hmm. I don't think completely worked, <laughs> but it also did. So I was like, I'm not certain whether I'm supposed to find this funny or horrifying. Maybe both. Kind of both. I don't know. Josh Gad was very odd. Uh, <laughs> that was all. That's all. He I was say. great. That's all. He's great, but I feel like he's in a different movie. I'm he's like, actively trying to get out of that Disney contract, I think. Yeah, something. <laughs> something. It's it's a very good film. I really liked it, and it's a good Halloween movie. I um, need someone to do 
um, mashup where they take his his dialogue from Little Monsters and put it over Olaf. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, that's so wrong. That is so wrong. <laughs> Don't destroy people's childhoods like that. Like, there are children present. Oh, my God. <laughs> Frogsy didn't make it. <laughs> Oh my god, the amount of swearing that that man does. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and so much of that was was improv. I don't doubt it. Yeah, like their whole that whole fight that they have. Yeah. When he's yelling all those insults, they were all improv. And someone <laughs> asked him cuz I saw this at Sundance and someone asked him at the Q&A like where he came up with that stuff and he's like, "I just thought it'd be really funny if I was calling someone a fat slob." <laughs> Yeah, I I liked that element, but that like kept on running. It was like, um, what's happening? Yep, what's happening? Oh well, yeah. So see, little monsters. It's it's a lot of fun, and it is a it's a good horror comedy, definitely. Um, I also want to give a shout out to I think I may have mentioned this before, but the uh, Creep Show is back on Shutter, and it's it's good little you know t- these are twenty minute. Um, the, the episode, each episode is about 40 minutes. The vignettes are about 20 minutes each. It's two stories per episode. Really just good short horror films. Um, some of them are fantastic. One of the best that a, a lot of people have talked about is um, The House of the Head, which is terrifying. Um, but there are others. There's like Lovecraftian horror. There's body horror. There's, you know, like kind of urban legends and revenge stories. It's it's a lot of fun and really well done. Um so, and then finally, I will always give a shout out to my favorite scary movie, The Haunting, uh, mm-hmm. which I'm not, I'm not, I'm actually not certain if it's available to stream anywhere right now, but find it, like rent it. I mean, we can find out. I'm looking right now because, <laughs> man, I wish the Just Watch app would sponsor me because I tell people to use it all the time. The Haunting, 1963. Yeah. It is not available streaming for free, but you can rent it for $2.99 right now on Amazon. Rent it, guys. Like, if you haven't seen The Haunting, the original The Haunting, 1963, not the 1999 remake, which is all kinds of dumb. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, so the original 1963 film is truly one of the scariest haunted house movies uh, that I have seen. And if you get a chance, please read the book by Shirley Jackson. It is very different from the Netflix series. So good. Uh, oh, yeah. But I also really love the Netflix series because I think I wouldn't if they were similar at all. Mm-hmm. But because they're completely different stories that just basically use the same names, um, I think that's why I, why I like it. But the book is so good. It's so yeah. beautifully written. So, all right. So let's move on from here. Uh, let's. See. I've already kind of given a roundup of New York Film Festival. Karen, did you want to give a roundup of what you saw in the Hamptons? Anything we should be watching out for? Yes, actually. I saw a couple of things that I really, really enjoyed. I'm pulling up my notes here. So um, I'm just going to go through because I, I saw eight movies at the festival, which seems like a, I slacked, but I feel like I saw a lot. Um so I opened Thursday night with Just Mercy, which is the new Destin Daniel Cretton film, which is about Brian Stevenson, who is a lawyer who has started um, an innocence project organization, and 
So this movie focuses on his early cases back in the 80s when he was just getting started. He's played by Michael B. Jordan. Um, yeah, he's very cute. I found him a little bit flat in this, but oh, I thought no. that... I know. Personally, I did. Other people really liked him, but I wasn't that blown away by his role. But the big surprise for me was Jamie Foxx, who I am not a fan of, but he was really good. And he plays one of the inmates who's facing execution. And, um, and he, it's made very clear very early on that he was wrongfully convicted. He's Mm -hmm. definitely innocent of this crime. And he, he is about like, he's close to getting an execution date. He is so great. Rob Morgan is another inmate that's on death row. So, so great. Brie Larson's really good. So it was like, it was weird that Michael B. Jordan was kind of flat for me, but then I realized he often kind of is, and I'm not that blown away by him. I think he's really pretty, but I realized that for me, he's not one of my favorite actors. Um, sorry guys, but, uh, but the movie is worth watching. I didn't, I wasn't blown away by it. But I think that it really deals with important topics that are very worth, um, very worthwhile. And I think that it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's not a groundbreaking movie, but it's an important one. Mm -hmm. And so I highly recommend that. So look for that. Uh, I saw a documentary that, um, I, at first I was ready to dismiss it, but I actually ended up really enjoying it. It ended up being one of the my favorite films that I saw and that was Scandalous the true story of the National Enquirer have uh, you... I've heard of it I have not seen it but I've heard of it yeah so it's very very typical style it doesn't break any ground in the way that it lays out the story but it goes through from the very beginning when General Pope Jr. bought the National Enquirer in the 50s and turned it into this like death magazine where it was like a lot of um, it was a lot of like uh, murder scenes and car accident mm-hmm. scenes and stuff like that being sold in grocery stores but then it very quickly morphed into you know this tabloid and so it goes through the history of the Inquirer even to where it's at today and how it's become this right wing propaganda magazine helping get Trump elected and everything mm-hmm. and he Mark Landsman the director was able to interview people that used to work for the Inquirer. Nobody that works there now was able to talk, but, um, but all these former reporters, the guy who used to run the entire thing, Ian Calder, and it's really great interviews and it gets into, you know, some of the tactics they used, how they were able to get that funeral photo of Elvis Presley in the casket and, Mm -hmm. The woman who was in the room when John Belushi OD'd and all these crazy stories and it gets into like where they did blur the lines of ethics and where they sometimes completely crossed the line into things that were totally illegal and wrong. Um, But also areas where world events actually really impacted the Inquirer and it was it was a fascinating story. So I was very surprised by that one. Let's see. I saw The Artist's Wife, which stars Lena Olin and Bruce Dern. It's, um, Bruce Dern plays this artist who develops Alzheimer's, and he's got a big show coming up, and he's just, 
at a point where he can't finish, he doesn't know that he can't finish. He still thinks that he's fine. And having been through Alzheimer's with two of my grandparents, Mm -hmm. some of it really struck, you know, struck close to home. But uh, overall, I thought Lena Olin was good. I thought Bruce Dern was good. But the movie itself just, I don't know. It Flat? Yeah. Yeah. It, I'm trying to think how to really describe it. It it just, I think I wanted something different. We've seen movies about couples dealing with Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, what they had last year was just such a beautiful film with Robert Forster and Blythe Danner. And I still, I guess that was still in my mind when I was watching this and it just made me wish I was watching that film instead. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely not something that it wasn't bad. It just, and I didn't see anything at at the festival that I didn't like, at least to some degree. But it just, it wasn't. I've seen other similar themed movies do it better. Mm-hmm. Um, then I saw The Irishman, and everybody who says that it does not feel three and a half hours is lying. <laughs> This is why I didn't go to an 8 a.m. screening. <laughs> yeah, you were smart. Don't do it. Um, now, I'm not saying don't watch this in a theater, because I do think it's worth it. But I st- I would like to reintroduce my objection. This needs an intermission. <laughs> it does. And people told me, oh, people who were at that 8 a.m. screening were like, yeah, no, there's not really a place to, to have an intermission. That is bullshit. <laughs> I can name three different spots in about the halfway point where it would have made perfect sense for them to just take a pause, give us 15 minutes to run to the bathroom and go refill our drinks and come back. And it would have been fine. That being said, it is a really good film. Of course it is. Someone asked me at Hamptons like the next day, Oh, did you like the Irishman? And I was like, wait, is it optional to not like, <laughs> to not like Scorsese films? Cause I mean, he makes brilliant films. He really yeah. does. But and this one is very good. Um, Joe Pesci was so surprising. And, and everyone's been praising his performance, so I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. But it's kind of one of those things where I just wasn't expecting it. He's he's so... There's just this quietness to him, but he still has that very domineering presence. And he was really good. And, of course, because Al Pacino is Jimmy Hoffa, he's the one who's going to get a lot more attention because it's a much louder much more in your face role but uh yeah Joe Pesci was great Robert De Niro was good too I have seen him better I've seen him better in Scorsese films so I wasn't I don't know like the best actor talk for me with him is kind of like I mean if it happens I don't think it'll be because of this performance it'll be because people feel like they have to nominate a lead actor for a Scorsese movie (laughs) and um not to say he's bad. It's just that there are other performances this year that I think are are better and more noteworthy. Um, yeah. So, The Irishman exists and it is very long. I did think that there were some areas <laughs> that they really could have trimmed it down. So, I'm sorry, that was such a great thing. The Irishman <laughs> exists and it is very long. <laughs> yeah. But it's good. And people who like... Scorsese films who like this era uh, you know it's like very 60s 70s people are going to really like it and um, yeah then what else did I see 
I saw Atlantics, which I know you saw it in Wayaka. Yes. And I didn't love it as much as you did, but actually reading your review on the website helped me process my thoughts a little bit more. So uh-huh. it was a really great review. And thank um, yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, it's good. I really like Maddie Diop and, and I like her eye. I like the way that she lets a story unfold. And I, at first I wished that I had known certain elements going into it were going to happen. But the more I've thought about it, the more I'm glad I went into it spoiler free because it does get into a surprising ride if you don't know what you're in for. So, uh, yeah, so that's good. And then I saw Knives Out. Yay! Have you seen it yet? I have not seen it yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So let me tell you, Knives Out is so much, it's every bit as fun as you think it's gonna be. The performances are awesome. The snarky biting comments between all these characters are just so great especially with like Jamie Lee Curtis and Tony Collette and oh my gosh Chris Evans someone on my way out of the theater someone was like I can't believe this is the first movie Chris Evans did after Captain America and I was just like I'm glad this is the first movie he did after <laughs> Captain America it needed to be something totally different and it is um, the mystery itself I didn't I was a little disappointed by, I'm going to be honest. I didn't feel like it was worthy of Ryan Johnson's talents, and I didn't think it was as uh, surprising or mysterious as I was hoping it would be. But I didn't care because the journey to get there was just so much fun. So, yeah. Cool. Go see Knives Out. It'll be out in a couple weeks. Cool. Uh, I'm really looking forward see. to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also saw The Two Popes, which is about Pope Benedict and Pope Francis. And this is, it takes place actually about a year before Benedict abdicated and retired. So, um, so it's a conversation between these two men and one of them kind of knows what's up and the other really doesn't yet. And very good. I was I was really surprised by it because I thought, well, it's just a movie of two old men talking. How is that interesting? I'm not Catholic. None of this really does anything for me, but yet it was surprisingly funny. Huh. And yeah, really good soundtrack. <laughs> like I did not expect ABBA to figure <laughs> in so <laughs> so prominently, but really good and and so, I mean, there are movies that this isn't one. This is written directly for the screen, but there are certain movies that have been plays and then they're turned into films, and you really still see, like, well, this still feels like I'm watching a play. Fences was one of those with Denzel Washington and Viola Davis, where it's like, well, this really isn't doing anything that shows me it needed to be a film. I could just go watch this on stage and probably have a more impactful experience. But this is one where it really drives home how you can take something that feels like a play and really turn it into something cinematic. Mm -hmm. And they do that by showing you, um, like, first of all, there's a lot of movement. They'll start in one room and then they're out in the gardens. Like there's, there's actual movement. They're not just staying in one location the whole time, but then it also gets into Francis's history and his life in Argentina and, 
why it took so long before he ever became a bishop or a cardinal and his backstory. And there was a lot of stuff I did not know about him that I just found so fascinating. And it made it make sense why he is so conscientious of people. And it's because he's he literally has lived among some of the poorest people in the world and served them. And it just gave me this appreciation for this man who really has no bearing on my life. I'm not in, I'm not in any part of his religion. My family is. I have a lot of family that's Catholic. But yeah, it really moved me a lot. And Jonathan Price was great. So was Anthony uh, Hopkins. But Jonathan Price really was, was very good. So I highly recommend that. And then I finished out the festival with Marriage Story. And, um... I don't really know what to say about it. It's, uh... <laughs> I wish that I didn't know as much as I did about Noah Baumbach and Jennifer Jason Lee's divorce because it honestly, and don't go look it up if you don't know before you see the movie, because honestly it did dampen my, my, uh, experience because the whole time I just kept thinking like, wow, he's sure giving himself a lot of passes here. He's sure making himself not look like, yeah, that looks like an all right guy. So. That doesn't surprise me. No, no. Uh, yeah, so it was hard for me to to separate myself from that and just look at it for the film that it is on screen. And that's unfortunate. I will watch it again now that I know what this movie is. Once it's on Netflix, I'll I'll watch it again, um, and hopefully I'll be able to do that. I think. I mean, Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson are great. They really are. I think personally that the buzz about Laura Dern is not that deserved. I felt like she was just, I felt like the whole thing was a bit. I thought she totally overacted her role. She was not believable to me. And I know, I know, I know. And I love Laura Dern and I just, I was looking for more Renata from Big Little Lies and it felt like someone who was pretending to be her for Mm. a funny, for a funny routine, you know? So, and that was disappointing, but, um, that being said, the movie is, is well done. It's not a bad movie. It just, it's not one that I think people can walk away from saying, I enjoyed that because there were times I was like, should I leave and let you guys just <laughs> have the room and talk this out? Cause it gets really intense and very raw hmm. and I don't necessarily like feeling like I'm sitting in someone's living room watching them have an argument that's very uncomfortable and awkward but because it does give that feeling I mean I think that's credit to the performers credit to the actors and yeah okay. I know people are going to love it I know they are so there you go that's what I saw in the Hamptons well, that, all of those actually sound like a lot of fun in, in various ways that definitely I definitely want to see Knives Out. Um, oh my gosh, you're going to love it so much. I can't wait for you to see it. I'm really looking forward to it. And I do want to see The Two Popes just because I like both actors. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's a good film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I was sitting next to two old ladies who are Catholic. And before it started, one of them, she says to me, if you need help with the Latin, I'll translate for you. She was so sweet. <laughs> and at the end, oh yeah, at the end she was sobbing and it was just nice to see that it had that kind of impact on people. And it's, you know, she was sobbing not because it was sad, but because she was so deeply moved mm-hmm. by it. That's good. That That is, 
I mean, that's the way the cinema should affect us. We should have that feeling at the end of things. Absolutely. Um, and that's that's really great. So, okay, well, let's move on. We do have a few questions. Two questions. One of them from someone that we've never heard of. Uh, but the first question is from Mason Purrier at Unstoppable Rant. His question is, how do you feel about Robert Eggers remaking Nosferatu? And for those of you who do not know this, director of The Witch and director of The Lighthouse, uh, Robert Eggers has been, this has been in the works for a while, I heard about it before, um, is going to be re remaking F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu, which, is, which was itself a adaptation of Dracula, in which Murnau could not actually used the name Dracula because Bram Stoker's widow didn't let him. Uh, and in fact, Bram Stoker's widow attempted to have all prints of the film destroyed. So, yeah. Uh, um, so, of course, it's already been remade once with um, uh, Klaus Kinski, uh, and it was remade by uh, Werner Herzog in a very different version of Nosferatu. So, Robert Eggers is going to be remaking it. I mean, I love The Witch. I have not yet seen The Lighthouse. I am pretty damn excited to see his take on Nosferatu. And, uh, you know, the, the Herzog film is so different from the original film. that, And I have a feeling that Eggers' film is going to be very different, too. So I, I don't feel like it's going to step on the toes of those movies or anything like that. What do you think about it, Karen? So I don't love The Witch. Um... But I also only saw it one time, and I don't know if... I think I just wasn't in the right frame of mood for it, frame of mind for it. Because I think that there are elements there. It's one that I didn't realize that was his first feature film until after I had seen mm -hmm. it. And I was really surprised, because it's very confident, and... um very well constructed regardless of my feelings of the story it's really well constructed and i haven't seen the lighthouse yet so i think that the type that i think that the style that he works in and i think that the aesthetic that he uses i think is really gonna fit well for nosferatu yeah. and i'm i'm very interested he's a robert eggers is a director that even though i've he's only made one film that i've seen so far uh he hasn't he hasn't turned me off like i'm very curious and i think that each of his films while he does have kind of a certain look i think each of his films is different enough from the other that i wouldn't not see one because i didn't love another mm -hmm. you know what i mean yeah he's got a very mature visual style that i i, I think he does yeah. i think it'll work really well if he's actually going to going to kind of go into the the expressionist aspects of the film um, I, of the story, I, I think that that'll work really well. So, yeah. Yeah. It will be interesting. So, our other question. <laughs> I'm going to do it because you decided to <laughs> post it. it. From Karen Peterson, uh, <laughs> at Karen M. Peterson, whom we have No never... one was asking questions. I was like, we got to have some <laughs> questions in here. <laughs> we had like, you know, 15 questions last time, and I got none this week. I, um, I don't understand you people. Okay, so the question is for Lauren. Uh, what three films best sum up your brand of horror? And I was trying to think about this. Um, I mentioned The Haunting earlier. The Haunting, yes, that is my brand of horror. I love creepy old houses. Um, the other one is Suspiria, the Argento film, not the, uh, the remake, which I also adore, but which is slightly more ancillary for me. And... Um, 
and Theater of Blood, the Vincent Price film, this film starring Vincent Price as a <laughs> as a uh, actor who decides to take revenge on all of the critics who have given him bad reviews. Uh, very and all of the murders are based this is why it's it's me all of the murders are based on Shakespeare's plays so all the murders are Shakespearean murders and it's, it's a great film like please like I, I'm not certain if it's again not certain if it's streaming anywhere right now it was on Amazon for a while which is where I saw it originally um, it's just so much fun Vincent Price is having so much fun just doing bad Shakespeare like he's just like he's just like oh you you want me to absolutely decimate Richard the Third okay I can do that <laughs> um, a lot of fun so yeah I think that those those three films kind of you know so we've got gothic women's horror uh, giallo and just sort of campy nineteen sixties nineteen seventies Technicolor so I think that those are all pretty much me. What about you, Karen? What are three films that sum up your brand of horror? Uh, okay, so the first one is Diabolique. Ooh. Which, yeah, I mean, that's one of my favorite films of all time. And I, I've i talked about this, I talked about this last time when you were talking about movies. I love the whole, like, I love when there's a mystery element to it where it's not straightforward. You don't know, like, is this really happening or what's really going on? And, and so I, I just love that. And it gets into the whole, it feels a little bit like a haunted house movie. You're not quite Mm -hmm. sure. And then the black and white element, it just, I love it so much. And, um, and I just am a big fan of French cinema in general too. Uh, another one is Poltergeist. Yeah. The 1983, 82 version, not the 2015. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I saw it when I was six years old. It's the first horror movie I ever saw. My aunts convinced my mom that it was just this nice movie about a family in the suburbs. No, it's not. It's terrifying when you're six. It's uh, And because of that, it's still terrifying when I'm not six. It's a scary um, movie. But it really is it's so well done and even though the effects are dated now the it really does get under your skin and and i love it and you know when you've got this element with this kid and you've got this these parents who are just desperate to get their daughter back and then um the way that this incident affects the family i think that's one of the things that i love i i mean i love the mystery element but i also really love movies where you see how something terrible affects the people that that are impacted by it and that's why i love movies like uh 28 days later which is a zombie film but it's really not about the zombies it's about the people you know that are left Mm -hmm. and how they deal with it and so those are so i think poltergeist does that so well it's such a good family drama rolled into into a horror movie set in the suburbs and like I know where that neighborhood is which makes it even creepier you know and it's like I grew up in a house like that this could have been my house in fact we'll talk next week about how it kind of was my house but um yeah so Diabolique and Poltergeist and then um also I'm gonna say Scream because I love the cheeky horror like the comedy elements of it and I like when movies are able to make fun of their genre while also being a really good representation of them so I, those are my 
I approve. I approve of all of those, definitely. So, and then also we had a fuck, Mary kill. Uh, I wanted to pick the three most different ones that I could think of. You really did. So the fuck, Mary kill is Robert Donat, Ray Milan, and Anthony Perkins. Um... All of which have appeared in Hitchcock films. All of which have appeared in Hitchcock films. And Robert Donat is like actually kind of feels like the outlier there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think that I think that uh, fuck probably Tony Perkins um, just because he's gay. And I don't really <laughs> want to marry him in that case. You know, I think that we should respect that. Uh, um, Mary Ray Milan, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to kill Robert Donat. Like, I, I, I am actually not that big of a fan of him. <laughs> no, I think that you have the right answer. So yeah. <laughs> so are those your answers also? Yep. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so thank you, everybody. If you want to send us questions, like seriously, particularly this month because you know we're doing horror films and it's Halloween and everything. So let's let's go on. I think we're gonna skip the trailer for now. Um, we'll definitely talk about okay. that at another point. But let's go on. I really wanted you wanted to talk about this. I wanted to talk about. It. Let's talk about Midsummer briefly. Yes, let's do. Um, I saw Midsummer. I'm I, sorry. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> uh, as I said on Twitter, I was I was prepared for Midsummer to be a lot of things. I was prepared to be disgusted. I was prepared to be annoyed. I was prepared. You know, I'm not. A, I wasn't a huge fan of Hereditary. Although there are definitely elements of it that I liked. Uh, I have all kinds of issues with Ari Aster, but I was prepared for a lot of things with this film. I was not prepared to be so fucking bored. Um, and I mean, by, by this I mean, I got to the, you know, hour and a half mark, and I was like, how is there another, like, hour of this film left? How can... Nothing's fucking happened. And that's what drove me crazy more than anything. Yeah, there's some there's some freaky images. You know, I understand why some people were disturbed by this film. I wasn't personally. I mostly just found it off-putting. Um, but like some of the images, just it just didn't bug me in in the way that it bugs some people. I get why it did. Uh, so, but there's but here's the the horror itself is so like limited and so few and far between that I was sitting there going like when is something gonna happen like yep. anything you know and so so much of the film is taken up with these arcane rituals and one of the problems and I know one of the things that people liked about the film is the fact that not everything is explained I wanted some more explanation because the issue that I had and I think one of the reasons why I was bored is that there wasn't any tension because I didn't, I knew that this was all going to lead up to something bad at some point, but it took so long and there was so much stuff that was just inexplicable. I didn't know what to do. I, I was sitting there going like, when is it, when is something going to happen? When am I going to understand what is meant here? And I don't, I think that it's a, an incredibly superficial film for all of its, you know, visual flourishes and everything it's a very superficial film in that i don't believe that this is a actually deeply religious community that has all of these rituals attached to it it feels like it's all just the ritual for the sake of ritual and which is fine and that that in itself can be explored this idea that we just go through these motions without really knowing what they mean but but the film doesn't explore that at any level it implies that there is meaning behind all of this but it doesn't give you meaning 
And so I'm sitting there going like, okay, so why are they doing this? You know, what does, none of, none of this connects for me and none of it makes sense in terms of the development of a religion or an old, or old pagan traditions or anything like that, which do have deep significance. It just felt made up and it felt like, oh, we're just, this is just happening because this is what, this is what happens. You know, I, I didn't understand why I cared and I had a real problem with that because, you know, if you're going to make me sit through a two and a half hour film, you've got to give me a reason to care. Um, the stuff that I cared most about was, uh, was Danny's character and her relationship with Christian. And, but again, I knew, I kind of knew where that was going. I didn't know exactly how it was all going to end, but I was like, yeah, I mean, I sort of figure what's going to happen at, at, at the conclusion of all of this. But because there wasn't any tension, because there was so little meaning behind it, and because it took so long to get there, I, I didn't feel the horror or the impact at the end of it that I think I was definitely meant to, and that obviously some people did. So I, I was totally flummoxed by this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know I talked about it when it came out, and um, I still have the same problems that I did. I think that this is going to sound really dismissive of, of people that like the movie. And if you liked it, I would love to hear from you some more details about why and how what I'm about to say is not you. Because I feel like there are a group of people that watch this and they're just so taken in by the bright colors and by the maypole and all these things that those are substitutes for depth and I think mm -hmm. a lot of people somehow missed that they didn't notice that there's no real depth to it and in my review that I wrote for a word circuit I actually said that everything is meaningless and so there will be people that try to explain oh you just didn't get it and they'll try to offer explanations and they're right because when nothing means anything everything means anything and so it's it's a very frustrating experience and I totally agree with you that the ending even if you see it coming a mile away it doesn't feel earned because the journey to get there doesn't make any sense and why they're doing what they're doing doesn't make any sense because it doesn't have any reason behind it and uh, one of the things and we're going to talk spoilers so if you somehow still haven't seen this and really want to you might want to skip ahead a bit but so yeah so one of the things about this community one of the things that Pele tells them when they get there is that they do this particular midsummer ritual every 90 years. I it, it's there's an assumption that they do something every year. Yeah. But this particular ritual is special because it's the 90th year. But then you find out very quickly that nobody in the community lives past the age of 72 and you find out why. Um but if that's the case then that means nobody is ever alive for you know for two rituals so how do they know that they're doing it correctly and how did and what does it matter if they do none of it is i mean it's all steeped in like what they understand to be their traditions but is yeah. there some supernatural element are they keeping dark forces at bay by doing this every 90 years like what's the, what's the point of it and no one knows and that's again why this is meaningless it's all totally meaningless and it's just to do something weird well yeah exactly and I, I think that again and that's the kind of thing that could be interesting like we do this because it's tradition to do it 
right? And where do right. those traditions come from? And like, there's a lot there that you could that you could unpack. But the film doesn't. The film doesn't spend any time with that because it's not. It isn't really. Ultimately, for all of the time that's spent on that's spent on these rituals, it isn't that interested in this community. Um, right. It isn't that interested in the reasoning behind it. And I think that, you know, and it. People made this comparison even before the film came out, but it's absolutely true. I go back to a film like The Wicker Man, the original one, um, where it's explained very, fairly clearly why the rituals occur and what the foundations of the community are and where the foundations come from and how they develop. So by the time you get to the end of the film and you actually kind of get to the, the climax, you know what's happening and why it's happening. And it's horrifying at that level, but you you get the belief system. I did not. I was not convinced in Midsummer that there was any coherent belief system, despite the fact that they have all of these trappings of a belief system. And the film makes no use of that. It, it's it's window dressing. Yeah, I mean, he spends like three or four minutes on this scene where a girl is teaching uh, Florence Pugh's character how to do this glass thing so they can do a toast yeah and they're just showing she's just showing her how to do it and there's no like why is it just because it's something cool that you do or is there a reason is there meaning to it and why does she touch the shoulder here it's just it was just dumb and it's this is a movie that is just about visuals yeah it's not about substance and I just, I don't like that. You know, I mean, even this summer ready or not, you don't know why they're doing these things and they don't know why they're doing these things, but it turns out there's a reason and, (laughs) you know, it's so much better done. But that's a good example. That's one where suddenly they're all like, wait, is the bad thing that we think is going to happen if we don't do this actually going to happen? That actually, that film interrogates belief more intelligently and with greater depth than Midsummer does. Exactly. And that, I'm sorry, I'm horrified by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was something, uh, Midsummer actually felt almost disrespectful to me because it was like, oh, this is all that religion is. And, yeah. you know, there there are people that are still pagans. There are people that are still Wiccans. There are all kinds of celebrations and festivals, including in places like Sweden and in Norway and Finland, surrounding the Midsummer. But these are deep and long-held traditions that are not just there to be traditions. They actually do have a a long history and a long relationship to complex belief systems. And this film just completely rode roughshod over that and did not care. It was just like, oh, isn't this cool looking? Um, I feel like Ari Aster is basically Christian in this movie where it's, there's no real intellectual curiosity and like Christian in this, he doesn't really, I mean, he's, you you pointed this out too is <laughs> the fact that he is not really an academic because he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing when it comes to writing a dissertation. None of these and... guys are real academics. Like watching that well, movie, I was not. like, I was like, <laughs> no PhD student in the history of PhD students behaves like this. Oh my god! Right. The closest one would be William Jackson Harper, who at least seems to have done some research beforehand, but. Uh, but yeah, no, this isn't the way dissertations work at all. But I just, I kept thinking that Christian basically represents Ari Aster unintentionally, I think, uh, in this, this just 
wide-eyed, like, oh, what? I don't know. You know, and he just kind of goes through the motions and yeah. doesn't really understand that he does. He doesn't understand that he doesn't understand. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, Midsummer sucked. Um, I do not recommend watching it just because... Not because it's horrifying, because it's so fucking boring. <laughs> yep. There are better things you can do with your time. Really? That's two and a half hours I will not get back. Um, nope. <laughs> So let's finish this up. We are running a little long, but you know what? We have to talk about this movie because it is a wonderful yes, movie. So let's end on a very, very high note and talk about Jojo Rabbit. I saw Jojo Rabbit yesterday. Um, they even gave me a pin. I'm so, so happy. Aww. They're handing out pins at the beginning, like the AMC. I was like, okay, I'll take a pin. <laughs> oh, man. A um, little Jojo Rabbit pin. Yeah, it was... I loved it. I, I kind of expected to enjoy it. I did not realize how emotional I would get over it. Um, it is very funny. I think it's probably one of the, the best kind of... It's one of the best anti-Nazi satires since The Great Dictator. And it has mm -hmm. a lot of elements in common with that in terms of the... Specifically in terms of the representation of the Hitler figure. And of both the violence and the cruelty and the nastiness of the Nazis, as well as the ridiculousness almost, and and how you come to terms with that. Um, and it it's it's a gorgeous film. Uh, for people who don't know the plot, the, the story is basically about a, a young boy in, I think it's 1946. It's nearing the 43, end. 43, 43 or 44. Yeah, it's near the end of the it's war. It's near the end of the war, yeah. Um, uh, so nearing the end of the war, who is a member of the Hitler Youth, he's a 10-year-old boy, and he has an imaginary best friend, Adolf Hitler, uh, played by the writer and director Taika Waititi. And it's about his this boy's relationship to his imaginary best friend, to his, uh, his actual friends, uh, to his mother, and to the culture that is around him and the society that he's trying to navigate and not completely understand. And then things happen. Um, it's honestly it's a wonderful film like i i did not expect to cry numerous times uh in a anti-hate satire comedy about hitler um, <laughs> i i was really moved by it i think that some of the criticisms that you know this film is making light of nazism is making light of, of hatred is trying to humanize Nazis. I mean, yeah, the the people, the characters in the film are human beings, and because and we do have to accept the fact that the Nazis were people. They were not demons. They were people that did horrible things, and they were people that were kind of drawn into some of them, particularly for a film that focuses primarily on children, um, were drawn into a world and a culture that they didn't completely understand that they were indoctrinated into. And it shows how to break free of that and what indoctrination actually looks like and what Nazism and fascism and hatred really looks like versus kind of the trappings of it. Um, it's, it's just, it's, like I said, it's the, probably the best satire, anti-fascist satire since The Great Dictator, and I'm not saying that lightly at all. Uh, I think that it's an obvious heir to that film. and. A very important one in this in this day and age, and a very hopeful one ultimately. So, Karen, you've talked about it a little bit. Uh, do, do you want to say something more? 
I do, I do, because to your point about how Nazis were people, um, there was a, a thing that just came out on Twitter, I think yesterday, someone had found an old photo album from a Nazi soldier, I think, or like an officer, and it was just like a bunch of guys hanging around. It was like, you look at these old pictures and they just look like normal people because they're not monsters. They don't have horn. I mean, they were monsters metaphorically, but uh, in reality, they they were people. A lot of them were conscripted into this. They joined the party because they were going to lose their businesses and their homes if they didn't and get arrested and stuff. Not defending any of that, but, you know, that was the reality. And I think that Jojo Rabbit does a really good job of of showing these adults, I'm thinking particularly like Sam Rockwell mm-hmm. and Rebel Wilson, who they're tasked with indoctrinating these kids. But from the very beginning, when you first meet Sam Rockwell's character, you can see that that he's, you know, his belief is not this. And he he's going along because he has to, because it's survival for him. But... Uh, there's so many people that just get caught up and I think that it's such a beautiful point about us and how we have to you know we have to protect ourselves from falling into some of those same traps and I think that the way he does it the way Taika does it is so subtle and so powerful and it does it starts off hilarious and you're just laughing your head off and then by the end it's just so moving and so emotional and the journey to get there it's you know like we talked about the tonal shifts with Parasite and I think that this handles the tonal shifts really well too because you don't even expect them and then when they happen it's just it feels natural it doesn't feel like I never felt like I got whiplash because I'm laughing yeah. and then I'm crying. It it felt like it just made perfect sense and it's so beautifully made. The craft that goes into this is just gorgeous as far as the production design, um, the costumes, the performers, Roman Griffin Davis, this child yeah. is just so precious and so sweet and it's just one of those things where you could you just totally feel for his mom, who's Scarlett Johansson, who is just wonderful too, actually. And in this movie, not as a person, I don't have an opinion of her as a person, but um, <laughs> but you can just see that in her, where she's she's got this son who's such a fanatic, and he believes so strongly in this, and he's so sweet, and she just wants so much more for him, and so much better for him, and she wants a better world him and it's it's just beautiful and then oh my gosh Archie Yates as his yeah. little best friend I I want them to make a like a hot fuzz type of prequel movie with Roman and Archie as Simon Pegg and Nick Frost <laughs> I think that would be just so much fun <laughs> and yeah Thomas and Mackenzie's great too and I really want her to get an Oscar nomination for this so. yeah it's it's a wonderful film and just in speaking to some of the things that you were saying about the, the shift between the humor and the seriousness this is a film that in a lot of ways was told through the eyes of a 10 year old boy and yeah. and all of those things that a 10 year old so at the beginning you get that exuberance that excitement of being a part of a club and going like I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna you know fight for my country and all of that sort of thing and 
then as the film progresses and things change and his world changes and his worldview changes, it the film itself alters and the kind of the, the madness of war comes into it and the madness of what's happening and the the horror as he begins to understand better what Nazism actually is and what it actually looks like. Um, and it, it works. Like, this is a film that should not work, and it does. Uh, and I do think that, that Watiti has threaded a very, very small, tiny needle and has done it. Like, he managed, he, he accomplished exactly what he set out to do. And I, if you miss it, if you if you decide, no, 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 this is just, you know, making light of Nazism or this is making light of the, the Holocaust or any of these things, I think that I think that you're missing a great deal of what the film actually does, that you're not paying close enough attention to what's happening. Um, and Absolutely. I have to say, and there are moments of extreme tension in this movie, the scene with the Gestapo officers. Oh my gosh, yeah. Which, on the one end, Stephen Merchant is the lead Gestapo officer, and if you've ever seen anything with Stephen Merchant, he's like this goofy, charming uh, right. comedian. <laughs> and on the one hand, there's humor. It's funny. And on the other hand, it's terrifying. And it that scene catalyzes so much of the film so well um, to just produce something where you're like, I'm laughing, but I'm also frightened. And mm-hmm. it, it, that's a difficult thing to do in a comedy, and to actually accomplish it and not make the audience feel like it doesn't work. Um, it's, yeah, it, it is, it is a great film and, uh, I really, I hope that everybody goes out to see it. I hope that it does really well, uh, cause it's, it, it really is worth it. And it, it says a lot of very important things about our, our contemporary culture as well. It really does. And I think that, I mean, for a lot of people still, the only Taika Waititi film that they've seen is Thor Ragnarok, maybe what we do in the shadows. Yeah. But if if those are the only two things that you've seen from him, you haven't gotten to see that. I mean, Jojo Rabbit isn't an anomaly, and it's not just like a step in evolution or anything like that. He has had the the framework of being a brilliant director for a long time. I mean, The Hunt for the Wilder People is a really yeah. great, great film that I think I think. It has a lot of subtlety that is easy to miss and I think it's the same with Jojo Rabbit where um, some of the things that he does, some of the choices that he makes are very subtle and if you're not paying attention you are going to miss it I can't wait to see this again yeah. to see some of the things that I didn't catch the first time but but yeah I mean I think this is this is the mark of someone who is a truly gifted director and now is I think thanks in part to Thor Ragnarok now is finally getting to do projects that are higher profile that more people are going to see that really show that he isn't just some adorably goofy guy on a red carpet who likes to give everyone hugs like there's a lot of depth and substance to this man and he really is very thoughtful and very deliberate in the choices that he makes yeah no absolutely it's it's a great film I love I also just like the fact that he opened the film with the Beatles ver- German uh-huh. language version of I Want to Hold Your Hand and that is the Beatles they recorded that uh, yep. for for distribution in Germany in the 1960s but again even that has layers to it like mm-hmm. the use of that song and the use of the images in that title sequence has layers 
Exactly. Uh, and yeah, it, it's a great film. I do have to say the audience that I was with was very much into it. Like the reactions were all, everybody was laughing. There were some moments where like you could hear the intake of breath. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but it, it really is. It is much more than what it looks like. Yes. Uh, so. Yes, absolutely. All right. So any, any final thoughts on anything? Uh, I think that that's probably going to wrap us up. What do you have on tap for this week, Karen? Uh, what do I have on tap for this week? I think I'm finally seeing Harriet. Well, finally. I mean, it's not even out yet. I hate when I do that. But, um, yeah, I think I'm seeing Harriet this week with Cynthia Erivo about Harriet Tubman. Uh, and I'm also seeing Dr. Sleep, and I'm very excited Ooh. about both of those. Yes, and how about you? I uh, I think I'm gonna try to go see the lighthouse because I'm very interested in that. I don't know what to expect, but I'm kind of looking forward to it. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, and then there I am gonna have a couple of reviews up on the website of, uh, of some Ida Lupino films, uh, the Kino Lerber box set, and uh, stuff like that. So watch out for those. We'll also be talking about horror films some more. So I think that's going to wrap us up. Thank you for listening, everybody. We went a little long, but I think that we had a good time. Uh, As per usual, there are many ways that you can get in touch with us. First of all, please subscribe to your Patreon if you have not done so already. We do appreciate it. It does keep the lights on and uh, keeps us hosted and keeps us, and you know, it's, it's also nice to know that people are are contributing and are listening. So that's patreon.com slash citizen dame. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at citizen dame pod on Instagram at citizen dame pod. We are still on Facebook, although everybody hates Facebook. Um, that's facebook.com. For good reason. Yeah. That's facebook.com slash citizen dame. If you want to send us an email with questions, concerns, responses, uh, no, no stupid white men, please. Um, that's, citizendamepod at gmail.com of course our website is citizendamepod.com there are plenty of reviews up there uh, Karen has has a couple of reviews up I have some reviews from New York Film Festival and there are going to be some more stuff coming over the next week and I think Karen you're going to write our review of Jojo Rabbit right? I am as soon as I have some time to sit down and do it awesome <laughs> yes. so check out our website for that we do have a Zazzle store that's zazzle.com if you want to get some merch and we also have a Ko-Fi if you just want to contribute a couple of bucks to us and don't want to dedicate yourself to Patreon just yet. That's ko-fi.com slash citizendame. And of course, you can always follow all of our rantings on Twitter. I am at LHBusiness. Karen, where are you? At Karen M. Peterson. And that's going to wrap us up for today. Bye. Poor Jojo. What's wrong, little man? Hi, Adolf. Want to tell me about that rabbit incident? What was all that about? They wanted me to kill it. I'm sorry. I couldn't. Don't worry about it. I couldn't care less. But now they call me a scared rabbit. Let them say whatever they want. People used to say a lot of nasty things about me. Oh, this guy's a lunatic. Oh, look at that psycho. He's going to get us all killed. 